Welcome to the herd and thanks for listening. We're happy to help you have informed conversations with your healthcare providers. But please do not treat anything we say in this or any of our episodes as medical advice. Even when the guests are physicians, they're not your physician. If you enjoy this sodcast, please like it, share it, give it a good rating, and follow, and help more people find their way into the Ruminati herd. If you have suggestions for improvements, please let me know. Howdy, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Meet Your Herdmates Sodcast. Today, I'm pleased and honored to be joined by Nina Teichholz, the author of The Big Fat Surprise and active in many other things that hopefully we'll talk about as we go along. Nina, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's good to see you. It's good to be seen. Better seen than viewed, I've heard some people say. <laughs> um, so, okay, how about just a little bit about yourself? Like if you were, remember when we used to go to dinner parties and maybe you would introduce yourself to people that you didn't, hadn't met before? What, what would be the short version of your personal introduction? Well, that's funny that you say that because at dinner parties, if I do introduce my topic, my um, my husband doesn't like it because then it just takes over the entire dinner table conversation because everybody wants to talk about food and what is good and bad for health. But I am a science journalist, the author of a book called The Big Fat Surprise that uh, was published by Simon & Schuster in 2014, was um, is still in print and was an international bestseller. Uh, I probably wouldn't put in that kind of hype if I were at a dinner table, but um, <laughs> all sorts of awards and things, but, uh, or was named best book of the year by a number of outlets, including The Economist and The Wall Street Journal and Mother Jones to cover the political spectrum. So, and the book's central thesis is, is that we have, our nutrition policy has really gotten it wrong on dietary fat, good fat, bad fat, how much fat to eat, um, and, and sort of how did it go off track? Why has it been off wrong for so many years? Um, you know, how do we get into this situation where we have a nutrition policy that doesn't keep people healthy? Um, so that's the short introduction. So, but you didn't study nutrition at university. You came to this sort of a backdoor kind of accidental experience on your own. Is that right? Yes. I'm a journalist. So I came to this, I was writing about food and doing investigative food stories for uh, a magazine called Gourmet. And I had um, been assigned a story about trans fats. And this really took me into what became an almost decade long um, rabbit hole looking into all kinds of facts. Uh, but as a journalist, I really brought a completely open mind. I didn't have any experience in nutrition, it's true, but also the benefit of that is it allowed me to see the science with completely fresh eyes, not being biased in any way towards any um, particular interpretation or ideology. And in fact, I, I, when I started, I was a uh, vegetarian and had been for a couple of decades. So my bias was in fact the opposite of what I eventually thought and found to be true from my research, researching, reading thousands and thousands of scientific papers, interviewing hundreds 
um, of scientists in various disciplines all over the world. So I studied political science in, in college and I did do pre-med courses at, um, I attended Yale and Stanford. And so I did have some background in biology, but as I always, well, the conclusion that I came to was it really is a story more about politics than it is about science. I mean, reading and understanding the science is something that you, that one can learn over time um, about statistical significance and all these other tools that you need to have. But in the end, the reason we have our, what I would call non-evidence-based nutrition policy has to do with politics and all kinds of influences on politics. So it turns out that that training was fairly adequate or, or even perfect for the field that I landed in. Indeed. Uh, and I seem to remember you relating how you were on some assignment that had you eating in some high level restaurants, but you were eating a lot of food that you had been taught, like many of us, to believe would not lead to loss of weight or better health, and yet you had some different experience. You have a good memory. Uh, yes, I did. I live in New York City and had a little throwaway column at one of at a tiny little paper, one of those free papers you get out of a newspaper box, and it was a it was a restaurant review column, and I really didn't know anything about fine dining, but um, I was writing this column, and they gave us free food because we couldn't afford to buy the food at the restaurant. So the chef at whatever restaurant would send out the food that they thought was the most impressive and, and, and the most sophisticated. And at that time, it's probably changed a bit now, but at this that time in the early 2000s, the foods they wanted to send out were things like truffles and foie gras and all cuts of red meat and, 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 all, and creamy, rich sauces. So of course that's a friend a tradition of French cooking. And I had really not eaten red meat in in decades. And I had certainly not had any butter or cream sauce, was completely taboo, untouchable. And I spent most of my young adulthood being uh, at least a good 10, 15 pounds heavier than I am now. And I found to my shock and surprise that as I was going to eat these huge meals at these restaurants that I started to lose weight and I didn't, I had no understanding why. And I went to my doctor, had my cholesterol tested. Was I going to die of a heart attack from these uh, fancy foods? And it turned out that all of my, um, my cholesterol, my lipid markers were better than ever. So that was quite a mystery. And I, and I, and I didn't really understand it at the time. It took the research for my book to, to sort of put all the pieces together, like well, why that, why that was true. Yeah. What a remarkable coincidence that you would see those observations just happen to be while you were eating all this fancy food that that sarcasm on my part. Um, so you meant you mentioned trans fat a little earlier. So um, what exactly are trans fats and where do they come from in our food supply? Well, um, there are actually two kinds of trans fats because you have an audience of people who are interested in ruminant animal animals. Um, I think it's important to say that one kind of trans fats uh, is found in the milk of ruminant animals. 
that is a completely natural and, 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 and it's an, actually a positive kind of fat that has been shown to, um, I think, have an, anti-inflammatory effects. But it is the exact same chemical formula as another kind of trans fats that is the result of an industrial process that, that it is called hydrogenation or partial hydrogenation that companies use to take seed oils like sunflower, safflower, um, cotton seed oil, and turn it into a solid. Why would they do that? Well, the oils are very unstable. They can oxidize. They, um, they go rancid is sort of the common understanding of that. And when that happens, they create all kinds of oxidation products, which lead to inflammation. So companies did not want those oils as oils. They wanted to harden them and the early product of products that were the result of that hardening were um, Crisco, which came out in 1911, the first ever time that uh, cottonseed oil, which had previously been used to lubricate machinery, was con was converted into something that they fed to humans. So um, Crisco, which was to replace lard, and margarine, which was to replace butter. Before that, Western civilizations had only really ever cooked with animal fats, which are you know, lard, tallow, um, suet, things that seem almost unimaginable to us now. Anyway, that process of hardening through hydrogenation created this byproduct called trans fats. And those trans fats ultimately were found to increase the so-called bad kind of cholesterol called LDL cholesterol. And for that reason, the trans fats have now been banned and are no longer allowed in our food supply. Hmm. Um, but, uh, it, it was a long, it was a big story. It was the story that sort of plunged me into this whole area of dietary fats. Uh, and it went on for many years, the kind of recognition that these, these kinds of oils were bad for human health. And then eventually they're banning from, from our foods. Hmm. Um, if you don't mind, if I can add just one thing, the re now that we can no longer, or companies can no longer use this process of hydrogenation, in many cases, they've, especially in restaurants, they have gone back to using just the plain oils, uh, mainly soybean oil in the United States. That's the main one that they use. It's um, the cheapest oil. And so this problem of oxidation of these products remains. And as any anybody who's taken even high school chemistry remembers, if you heat something, it speeds up the reaction. So you can imagine in a restaurant, heating those oils, French, you know, putting the French fries in them, that has created um, a situation where now almost all restaurants use these heated oils and they really do have um, really negative consequences for human health, which we can talk about. But I mean, it, it has it has profoundly changed my desire to go out to eat now mm. that <laughs> I mean, trans fats were bad. And that is what restaurants used to use. But um, but I think that we sort of went from the frying pan and leapt into the fire with a, nice. when reverting back to regular old vegetable oils. Yes. Was it – who was the gentleman from Omaha that waged the one-man campaign that got McDonald's to take tallow out of their frying vats? Sokolov, is that? Yeah. Aaron Sokolov. Yeah. Right. And he, uh, so he was a 
very wealthy um, businessman from Kansas who was absolutely convinced that saturated fats were bad for health. And he took out full page ads in the early 1980s, I believe, um, in all the top newspapers, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, New York Times, saying basically urging food companies to get uh, saturated fats out of their products. And he started a letter writing campaign to the same effect. And that resulted in many, many companies getting rid of saturated fats, which at that point could have been lard or, um, or, or, or palm oil was a big one. Um, and those were solid, stable fats. So what was going to replace them was this hardened oil, um, partially hydrogenated oil. And really there was a, the biggest increase that we experienced in the consumption of these hydrogenated fats was in the 1980s, not just Sokolov, but there was also the other campaigns uh, that I write about in my book. Yeah. So the, the, what's it called? The, the subtitle of your book is why butter, meat and cheese belong in a healthy diet. <laughs> um, and, and so that's the surprise that um, we've been taught that in fact, we should restrict our consumption of those three components. And then, um, uh, of course, nobody sits down and just eats saturated fat. They eat meat that contains animal source protein, micronutrients, a variety of fats. And that's one of the things um, I, I know that I've been made aware of in several places, but we treat animal source fat and or animal fats and saturated fats as if they're synonymous terms. And the truth right. is we get saturated fatty acids from almost every natural food stuff that we eat. And when we eat animal source foods, we get mono, um, uh, um, unsaturated, monounsaturated and polyunsaturated fatty acids from the same thing. Yeah. I mean, maybe a good place to start with this is that, Almost all foods, except for sugar, uh, contain some mixture of various kinds of fatty acids. So they can, as there are three kinds, but as you said, they contain um, polyunsaturated or monounsaturated, that's the kind of olive oil, or saturated fats. And uh, saturated fats, it's really the central story of my book. How do we come to believe that saturated fats? are bad for health, it was thought that they cause heart disease. And that is a theory that was really born in the late 1950s. It was before then, nobody would think to avoid meat, cheese, whole fat milk or dairy or any kind of whole fat dairy due to the saturated fat content. Nobody had even heard of that idea. So my book charts like how did that idea become part of our public health uh, conventional wisdom, and then how did it grow and rise? And how was it that all this enormous body of evidence to the contrary was just ignored, suppressed, not published? That's really, it's an amazing story. Um, and you're right. I mean, the, the food stuff that contains the highest proportion of saturated fats is actually coconut oil, which is, I think, in 85, 90% saturated, um, uh, or saturated fatty acids. Um, palm oil is another one, very high in saturated fatty acids. Uh, you know, steak, an average porterhouse steak has about 
30% of its saturated fatty acids are, sorry, about 30% of its fat is saturated. So the food category that has the most saturated fatty acids is dairy. Um, but it's, it's a, you know, we began to, we were told starting in 1961 by the American Heart Association that we should avoid the, all these saturated fatty acids to prevent heart disease. Um, and there's a whole story behind that we can go into or not, but that is, that was sort of the beginning of modern, uh, modern day nutrition policy, which was here are foods you need to avoid to prevent chronic disease before then. And this is super interesting before then we were told you need to get enough food, not just to prevent hunger, but to get all the essential nutrients that you need to be healthy have healthy children. Um, and that was the focus of nutrition. Yeah. And we've so, completely lost that. You know, we've, we, now we, we came to face heart disease and subsequently cancer. And then we became obsessed with, well, what do we need to cut out to avoid those conditions? Right. Um, one of my learning moments was coming to realize that, so the American Heart Association is one that you mentioned, but they're not a patient advocacy group. <laughs> well, that's not that's not their that's not their purpose their purpose is to represent that specialty the people who practice that specialty within medicine and so um some of this dietary messaging um actually became a revenue stream for them um with their certification of various foods having a logo on it and and the other thing is the remarkable lack of evidence that was used to justify these hypotheses um, that we, we think this is the case and therefore based on what we think it is, then if you do this, then we think you'll get this benefit. Yeah, all really good points. And maybe I'll just tell the story just briefly, which is that um, in the 1950s, there was uh, heart disease was fast on the rise and had become the number one killer in America, especially of men. And but and in the early 1900s, it it seems impossible to believe, but there was almost no heart disease. It was really not on the radar. And therefore, there was not even really a profession called cardiology to deal with heart disease because it was so rare. It was known and described in textbooks, but it was very rare. In the 1950s, President Eisenhower has a heart attack and is out of the Oval Office for 10 days. And the whole nation's attention is fixated on this question of what causes heart disease. There was a tremendous urgency to answer that. Uh, that question to give the public some advice. And at the time, the American Heart Association was the leading public health organization that was advising Americans about what to do to, to prevent heart disease. And Ansel, the, uh, uh, a scientist named Ansel Keys from the University of Minnesota, he had come up with the idea that it was saturated fats and dietary cholesterol that caused heart disease. That was called the diet heart hypothesis. And I describe him in my book, but he was a very, he had a very outsized personality, he had a very strong, um, it, he, he 
He had an unshakable faith in his own beliefs. He was able, as his friend said, to argue anybody to the death. And he was able to get himself onto the nutrition committee of the American Heart Association, which in just 1960 had said, we don't have enough evidence to tell people how to eat to prevent heart disease. We just don't know. But when Ansel Keys got on that committee, he was able to pivot the whole committee to say one year later, with no greater amount of evidence, that it was his idea, saturated fat and, and cholesterol that caused heart disease. And thus, to avoid those dietary elements, which would mean reducing meat, cheese, butter, whole, whole fat dairy, was the best measure of protection against heart disease. And that's really where it all began. Um, you know, that was a tiny nub of an idea that then exploded to now be conventional wisdom worldwide. As you say, the evidence was extremely scant. It consisted of one not yet published study by Ansel Keys himself uh, called the Seven Country Study that we don't have to go into detail about it, but it was it was a very large study in, uh, that included um, nearly 13,000 men, men only, across uh, mainly in Europe, but also the U.S. and Japan. And um, whatever you want to say about that study, it was a study that showed association, but not causation, what we call an epidemiological or an observational study. So it was really the kind of study that can generate a hypothesis we can say this is a possible hypothesis, but it cannot be evidence for it because it's not, you know, in scientific terms, it's not a controlled trial. Um, it, you would never be given a, a medication, a pill, a drug by your doctor if it had not gone through a controlled clinical trial. And yet this diet was dispensed to the entire American population having not gone through a clinical trial. And now to the rest of the world. And now to the rest of the world, due to this sort of this vacuum of, of information and the public urgency, the need to provide some kind of advice. Um, mm -hmm. So I think that, you know, we could talk that, 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 in fact, governments around the world, although they adopted this advice, they were responsible and said, we don't have enough evidence. We, there's an insufficient amount of evidence to, to have this policy. Even the U.S. government acknowledged that and therefore funded clinical trials, proper rigorous clinical trials. These trials took place all over the world. Um, and they tested altogether some, let's say, I mean, there are various estimates, but they say up to about 75,000 people were tested, which is, which is really more people that have been tested on this hypothesis, this diet, than any other diet in the entire world ever in the history of nutrition science. This idea, Ansel Key's idea, has been rigorously, extensively tested. And of course, and, it's been proven by this rigorous science. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, the results ultimately were what we call null, meaning none of these studies could show that people who reduced saturated fat and cholesterol, replaced butter with margarine, replaced meat with whatever the version in the 1960s was of the Impossible Burger. They swapped out, you know, they had soy-filled cheese, soy-filled milk. Those people did not see any reduction in, uh, in cardiovascular mortality or total mortality, um, in death from any cause. And they, on the whole, did not see any reduction in 
cardiovascular events like you know heart attacks, stroke. Um, but you know, why do we not know about this? Why was all or why were why were these results not incorporated into our policies? Um, and that is the political side of the story. <laughs> we don't have time to see if we're right. We must be seen to take action. Um, well, what happened? Is George the policy, you know, the ship had set sail, and the policy had already become institutionalized, and so there was uh, a lack of desire to reckon with these results, even by the investigators themselves, or perhaps I should say, mostly by the investigators themselves, who. In, in some cases, they didn't even publish their results. One of the largest studies to ever take place in the U.S., they didn't publish for 17 years. And then when they, you know, when they were asked, why didn't you publish this for 17 years? Uh, they said, well, we, there was nothing wrong with the study. We were just so disappointed in the way it came out. Yes, yes. And I want to say that all these studies, because they have been criticized as being insufficiently rigorous, not well controlled enough. I mean, you will find criticisms of these studies if you go looking for them. I, I cover them in my book if anybody's interested. But, but the reality was that in all of these studies, there were, they were able to significantly reduce the cholesterol, usually by about 13% of the people on the low-saturated fat diet. That shows that they were, changing, they, they were successfully eating that diet, and that group had significant changes to show for it. But it did not translate into long-term outcomes, better outcomes for heart disease. And as I point out to people, there's a fundamental difference between animal nutrition and human nutrition. You can do things in animal nutrition studies that you ethically can't do with humans, let alone the cost, let alone as, as one friend, you know, it's very hard to find large groups of genetically similar human beings that you can control for long periods of time, know exactly what they eat, what they do, what they don't eat, what comes out, the quality of all that, and then sacrifice them at the end of the study to determine body composition. You can't do that with humans that somehow reluctant. And yet that's what we do in animal nutrition all the time yeah. in production cycles. Um, well, I want to say that, you know, these studies, they were conducted in the 1960s and 70s, and they did do things that would be considered unethical by today's standards. And that's yes. part of what makes them so exceptional. So they, quite a number of them were conducted in inpatient facilities, mental hospitals, um, veterans hospitals, that, that is something that would not be considered ethical by today's standards. And they, uh, and because, and they were therefore, uh, much more well controlled because they, on the whole, this is not a perfectly controlled experiment, but they did get to control a lot of the food that people ate. Mm -hmm. Um, so you couldn't kind of do, you couldn't do that experiment today. But the other thing that's remarkable about these trials is that this was sort of in the heyday of nutrition research when a lot of money was going into nutrition studies. And so they followed these people. Uh, these studies went on for a long time, eight, nine years. And one in Finland went on for 12 years. So they were able to get what we call hard outcomes, which is heart attacks and death. Those are sort of the top, top gold standard outcomes because they are there's not no interpretation so, here. There's, there's, well, heart attacks is a little bit subject to interpretation, right? There's some, there can be doctor bias 
in, involving a diagnosis of a heart attack, but death, nobody can dispute death. So that is why those long-term trials really are so, I mean, they're very hard to do, but they did do them and they're meaningful. And um, it is another interesting and astonishing fact that none of those trials that, that are our top official government committee, expert committee that makes the guidelines, you know, the national policy, nutrition policy for all of America has never done a review, its own review of these trials. Hmm. Ever. Remarkable. Remarkable. It's almost as remarkable just to one more time touch on Mr. Keyes. Sorry, doctor. Um, that um, some of one of the things that you really opened my eyes about was how we came to believe that the, in quotes, Mediterranean diet was this preferred diet. And and the biggest part is which part of the Mediterranean are we talking about? And then there's the issue of when he visited some of these places, it was during Lent. And, right. and so we're taking food intake data of an observant population during Lent. Might that be different than the rest of the year? And we're talking at least about early to mid-50s. And so we're less than a decade after World War II, which it's reasonable to assume that food supply was interrupted and some other things were going on and that might have impacted things. And none of that is really part of the conversation. It's just this received wisdom from this arguably questionable source. And it's had this dramatic impact for decades. Yeah. The Mediterranean diet story also goes back to Ansel Keys and his work in Europe where he was convinced due to, as you say, uh, you know, post-war observations in the 1950s that people who um, didn't eat a lot of animal fats were, had lower rates of heart attacks. But you know, these people were also not eating much sugar. They didn't have uh, you know, a lot of packaged goods. They were poor. They were recovering from famine, mass dislocation, war. But he, you know, he was so convinced of his own hypothesis that he sort of imposed his vision um, uh, on, on the data. Uh, and the Mediterranean diet stems from his observations of people on the island of Crete, which were to him like his star population because they seemed to live very long uh, and they, at least this peasant culture, and they seemed to eat to his, according to his eye, very few animal foods. But as you say, during one of the three visits that he made to Crete, they were observing Lent which is a strict Greek Orthodox Lent is extremely strict and prevents the consumption of any kind of animal foods. Well, that was one third of his data. And then there were all other kinds of problems with his data. He, he, he actually took the food and sent it back to a lab in Minnesota to have it analyzed. And he just looked at the, at the fat content of, of this food, um, in order, well, I mean, so he, he didn't, for him, like he translated goat meat and, you know, because it was relatively unsaturated for him, it came up in, you know, American terms, that would be chicken. So he didn't really, he didn't really evaluate the actual food that they were eating. I mean, so, and anybody who goes to the Mediterranean, that's even Ansel Case himself observed when he was there. There's just a tremendous variety of the foods that are eaten around the Mediterranean. And to try to, collect all of those different 
cultures, cuisines, traditions, and histories and call them one thing, the Mediterranean diet, is, is something that really, um, even he did not believe. Um, mm-hmm. And he, to be fair, like, he didn't propose it as a scientific concept. He wrote a book about it with his wife, and it was sort of a cookbook. It really wasn't until um, Harvard University, Walter Willett came along, uh, who was the head of the Harvard School of Public Health for decades. Uh, he was just, he was completely enamored with this idea of the Mediterranean diet, and he published it as in a scientific journal and said, like, this is the Mediterranean diet and defined it in certain ways, which I think inaccurately reflected the data. So, but that was in the early 90s that um, that there was the Harvard Mediterranean diet. And that was the birth of sort of the Mediterranean diet as we know it. Yeah, I didn't know Harvard was in the Mediterranean, but okay. Um, I thought it was <laughs> Massachusetts. Um but a big part of what you showed me in The Big Fat Surprise was how, for example, the olive oil industry mm. promoted the messaging through journalists, through junkets and what seminars. I put seminars in quotes. I mean, maybe they had talks, but the big part was to take people to the Mediterranean in our winter, which sounds like a good deal to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and the influence that that sort of thing keeps coming up again and again, where we have industries that benefit from the messaging successfully getting people in media to promote the message. And consciously or unconsciously, although it sounded from what I remember that it was fairly conscious. If you don't, if you don't write glowing stories, you don't get invited next year. Something along that line. Yeah, I mean, imagine yourself. You know, a, a journalist. Journalists don't get paid very well, and all of a sudden you're invited to go to Greece uh, for an expense-paid vacation, and you're eating sumptuous meals and hiking up to the top of uh, mountains and getting special cheese making lessons from the local women. And I mean, that is you just, just irresistible. And, and I was, these conferences were largely organized by an organized organization called Old Ways. And they, it was mainly funded by the European olive oil industry, which wanted to introduce olive oil to Americans. And successfully they did. I mean, we, olive oil was very little consumed in America until this major effort through the Mediterranean diet the linchpin of which was the olive oil. So journalists would go and in their rooms, there would be little olive oil bottles on their pillows at night. I mean, they, they, this was, it was a marketing campaign and it was waged through scientists. So the olive oil industry also funded the scientists and their studies and their, their journal supplements. Um, and it also made its way through journalists because, you know, as was quoted to me, it was very, as you just said, it was very clear if you went on one of these junkets unless you wrote about it, you would not get invited back. Um, so that was the whole, <laughs> that is how the Mediterranean diet came into being um, through this industry funded um, whole series of gorgeous exotic conferences. Um, and that was all throughout the 1990s. But the larger topic is, as you say, the influence of the food industry on nutrition science. And that is a huge, a huge problem. Going back to the very first group of 
industries uh, that formed a little lobbying group um, called the Nutrition Foundation. I believe that was back in 1940 that they were first formed. And this was the Standard Biscuit Company and Heinz Company. And they were, these were all these rising processed food companies. There had been very little processed foods before sort of the like 1930s, 40s. This was the beginning of the whole processed food industry. And they needed to get their products um, accepted, not only through advertising and magazines, but they very quickly learned that the best way is to, to influence the conversation is to influence science at the very influence the science from the start. So, you know, fund the conferences or fund research by professors. We all know that research that's industry funding has industry funding tends to be more favorable of the product that it is, it is studying. And this has been going on for many, many decades. I mean, going back to that decision by the American Heart Association, which told people cut back on saturated fats, replace them with polyunsaturated fats. That was instead of butter, have margarine. Instead of, uh, you know, instead of lard, have your, your Crisco. The American Heart Association was really transformed into a national powerhouse by a big uh, infusion of money that came through Procter & Gamble, maker of Crisco Oil. That's a, a story that is really quite remarkable. Um, and that happened in 1948. And then not too long after, the American Heart Association is endorsing um, basically Crisco Oil and its and other and other vegetable oils to be consumed in, in ever larger quantities. So, but this, you know, I think that the, the common narrative and the one that your audience may have heard is that it's the, the big bad industries are the meat and especially the meat industry and the dairy industry. But what I have found in my research was really all industries are at the table and they're very, the ones that are far more sophisticated are the huge multinational corporations, um, you know, the Unilevers, the Nestle's of the world. Kellogg's, the Danones, they are extremely sophisticated and they are working at a very high level. Also, you know, if you want to talk about vegetable oils, it's ADM, Cargo, Monsanto. I mean, some of the biggest companies in the world, IOI, Lotus Crockland. So, um, you know, these, all of these companies and the whole pharmaceutical industry <laughs> is is involved because they have drugs and devices that that are that sort of compete with um dietary solutions you can instead of going on a diet you can take optifast or um you can get you know you can have bariatric surgery rather than losing weight through diet so there are all these there are so many industry interests yeah. that are all pushing on expert opinion at every step of the way um, really, starting from the science, going through every level up to policymaking. Absolutely. Um, it's, it's fair to point out that um, this effort that you've already described was aimed at heart disease. But then we began to see theories about other chronic diseases and even obesity itself having to align with that theory. And so if you wanted to avoid obesity, well, since, well, I guess 
the 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 most absurd version of this is what I became aware of back in 2010 when I first started coming into this space. Since diabetics are at an increased risk of heart disease, that's a true statement. And since we know that fat in the diet causes heart disease, it's a false statement, it must be even more important for a diabetic to be on a low-fat diet, which means they're on a high-carbohydrate diet, which means exactly wrong. And yet, and then it be, you know, weight control, well, you know, we, we... we had some people talking about, well, maybe it's carbohydrates in the diet and other people were saying it was fat. But if it's if it's carbohydrates in the diet and you can't eat those, but these people are saying fat in the diet causes heart disease, you got to eat something and 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 maybe, you know, and then it becomes the keto obesity is low fat. And an, another point that you and others have made me aware of is so much of what we think we know is really based on observations on some very select populations that aren't very diverse. Yeah. And yet we're extrapolating this to entire populations. So it, 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 there's, there's a lot there to unpack if you care to pull on any one of it. Otherwise, we'll just move along. <laughs> well, I, I, think you, I think you made a really good observation about how getting trapped into a certain hypothesis led to all kinds of sort of uh, catastrophic thinking down the line from that. Because the, the fundamental principle of nutrition policy from the 1960s onward was fat, saturated fat, cholesterol, bad. So that, ha- that was the starting point for all other thinking and still is for many scientists today. Well, our starting was saturated fat is definitely bad. So we have to move from that a priori assumption. And you can see this in the scientific literature throughout the decades, which is no matter what anybody would find, they would say, well, even though I did not find this in my paper, we know that saturated fat is bad for health. So there must be something wrong with my paper. Um, and you know that could be their real opinion. It could be that they feared not ever getting funding again or not getting promoted in their department. There was tremendous academic pressure to um, to go along with a dominant paradigm, a dominant hypothesis. And you know, and fat, the overall dietary fat. Um, I just want to talk about that for a second. The idea with dietary fat was. Fat, either, you know, there are three types of macronutrients, fat, protein, carbohydrate. Fat has nine calories per gram. Protein and carbohydrate have four to five calories per gram. So it was just assumed that if we reduced fat, we would save calories. And that was really just an assumption that was made. It had never been tested in a clinical trial. Nobody had 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 seen like what happens when you reduce fat when you reduce fat in a diet uh, a few things happen and they didn't this advice went out to the entire american public starting in 1970 again via the american heart association not until the late 1990s did they start doing serious trials on the low fat diet and what did they discover well lo and behold it increased your uh, negative 
um, lipid factors, which what does that mean? That means that like things like your fatty acids circulating in your blood, your triglycerides rose, went up. That's a sign of worsening heart disease risk. Your good cholesterol would inevitably, your HDL cholesterol would inevitably drop. So those are two signs of worsening heart disease risk. And that consistently happened in these low fat studies. And the main reason is that, you know, if you take out fat, again, there's only three macronutrients. If you take meat or, um, you know, an egg cheese pie off the table for dinner, you're going to replace it with something that is most likely carbohydrates, pasta, grains, rice. So a low fat diet is really de facto, almost de facto, a high carbohydrate diet. And that is actually what we were told to eat. So, um, so that was, um, and that is also, I just want to finish the story out by letting people know, because I think most people don't even know that the low fat diet is actually no longer an official recommendation and both the American Heart Association and our official top government U.S. dietary guidelines have been slowly, quietly backing out of the low fat diet language really since the results of these studies came out where they showed people because people were, had a higher risk of heart disease by going on a low fat diet. So the low fat language has slowly kind of become de-emphasized. And now if you search the term low fat on either of those authorities' uh, websites, you just can't find it anymore. And the, the head of the dietary guidelines said, you know, there is no conventional low fat diet recommendation anymore. But of course, nobody knows that because there was no press release. There was, you know, if you're reversing a major pillar of official policy and you would expect a big education campaign was needed in order to let people know, but there really, there hasn't been a word. I mean, there's been one word from the government. Well, it takes a long time. It it takes a long time to turn the super tanker conventional wisdom around and get it heading in the opposite direction and make it appear as if that's the direction it's been in the whole time. Right. Especially if you don't tell people. So, I mean, that's, you know, it makes it harder. Yeah. Um, so it, it, there's, there's a lot of other interests that have been part of this, but let's, um, and I'll tell you a a story that I don't know that I've shared with you before, but, um, one, so one of the standard, um, criticisms of animal source food is of course this assumption that animal fat in animal source food is that saturated and therefore bad for you um and then sometimes there's this information that they try to say that animal source protein is somehow harmful to you as compared to plant source protein, which opens up a whole nother conversation about the inadequacy of policy and wisdom around animal source foods. Um, the, the, I came into this space in 2007 um, and didn't start appearing in public until 2010 about it. But along the way, all my confirmation biases got tripped by the grass-fed literature such as it was at the time and the messaging about it. And on a couple of occasions, I got to ask Gary Taub some questions about what I was thinking I was seeing in that literature, which was a lot of the um, 
since we know that saturated fat causes heart disease, um, therefore, if we can produce meat with, you know, less saturated fat, it would be a good thing. And they even were looking, trying to say that ours has less cholesterol. I mean, it was a lot of trying to make this fit into the conventional narrative instead of saying, let's let maybe, maybe that's not the case. And maybe this really isn't as important. And he said, you need to contact my friend, Nina. And it's like, I wish I had done it earlier. Um, and, and I remember you sharing some information about the fish oil industry that sort of mirrored the olive oil industry. Um, and, and that's impressed me a lot over the years. So thank you for that. Um, the, what I don't think one, one of the observations I've made, others gave it to me, is that books like Diet for a Small Planet influenced McGovern's committee and is cited in Dietary Goals as a reference and contains some real weakness in some of its points, um, but it's still well thought of. The, the influence of organizations that oppose animal agriculture and the consumption of animal products as part of their belief systems has been really, really fundamental in a lot of this dietary messaging over the years. Would you agree with that last statement? Yes. And obviously it's become much, much more powerful in the last, say, five years. This idea that we should not eat meat specifically, um, maybe all animal products, because they are they consume too much of the earth's resources to produce them. So a pound of beef is much more weighty in terms of its resource consumption than a pound of plants. Um, and that was the argument in the Diet for a Small Planet by Francis Morlepe, which was a very influential book. And, and its ideas have been disseminated and now picked up in other ways. But this um, this the, the environmental weight of meat on the on the planet is has become probably the an even stronger argument than saturated fats. I mean, in saturated fats, that argument is is losing. <laughs> you know, there are now twenty at least twenty separate review papers where scientists have gone back and looked at all those clinical trials that we discussed on those seventy five thousand people. And looked at the data and said, you know, we were wrong. We the saturated fats do not have an effect on cardiovascular mortality or total mortality or even heart attacks or other cardiovascular events. And there have been um, large a large study that showed that the more saturated fats you ate, the you had a much lower risk of stroke. So the conversation about saturated fats has really shifted, and I think it's a, just a matter of time until, you know, I mean, this information, these 20 papers has largely been suppressed. But I think it's, we now have very, very top level scientists speaking up about this. And I think it's um, really a matter of time before that part of Ansel Keys's hypothesis crumbles. I mean, I, I hope that that's true. There's a very important paper that came out in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology a very important journal for cardiologists um, who are, are quite influential 
And that paper included, its authors included three experts who had served on the U.S. Dietary Guideline Committee, which is the top committee in the entire world, really, for deciding what people should eat and should not eat. And these experts were saying, we got it wrong on saturated fats. And that paper was just selected by the editor of the Journal of American uh, College of Cardiology as one of the top 100 papers of 2020. So I think that issue is making progress and that the science is increasingly being recognized. And my hope is that it will be heard. Uh, I think it's impossible to truly deny the science for too long. Um, you just, well, it looks too bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> although, so, although I know that the, there's a great deal of effort trying to sort of suppress, ignore um, this, this body of scientific literature. So what has become stronger uh, are the environmental, the, the animal rights arguments, the, these other arguments against any kind of animal agriculture. You know, it's not my area of expertise, uh, but I think, um, you know, I, I find it concerning that, I mean, my basic concern is that a whole consensus around this subject has happened in a very short period of time. And my understanding is there's really never been a high level conference that where these issues have been debated. Now, I don't think anybody's ever come out and had a conference where they've actually had scientific debate over this question. Should we remove meat from the food supply? Would that be a good thing for health? No. What about all the nutrients that go yeah. missing in that diet? Right. Um, right. What, and so that, I mean, there's been a scientific consensus that's been reached without the proper scientific process, which is yeah. debate, discussion, yeah. policymakers have never been presented with the alternative set of viewpoints about health and human well-being for this, this, whole, this whole consensus that they've now reached. Yeah. So uh, it, to me, that sends off complete alarm bells in my head because, you know, you cannot reach a scientific consensus unless all sides are heard. Period. Yeah. Well, and uh, I mean, we could talk about the the concept of an established consensus, which we we've just been talking about how one was artificially created and now governs and is. I I trust that you're right. Um, I'm, I'm optimistic that that we're seeing the end days of that. Unfortunately. I also agree with you that we've seen this manufacture or this adoption of whatever the next argument is. It's a bit of a whack-a-mole game that whatever you whatever suits the purpose of people who for whatever reason are against animal agriculture or the consumption of animal source foods, they will use until it no longer serves their purpose and then they'll move on to the next. And ultimately, it's not about science. It's about how they feel about it or how they can manufacture um, outrage and concern about an issue that may or may not exist and certainly does not represent how they portray it. And so there are papers that say, if we were to eliminate livestock agriculture from the United States, what would be the impact? And the, the, the point is, it's impossible. We, we can't do it. Um, and the other point that's a concerning is the interests that are behind this effort also represent industry. 
and and people who have vested interests. These are not at least Sokolov. You could say he thought he was right. You know, he had had a heart attack and he was trying to do something good with his money. And he was convinced by what he had been told. I'm not convinced that that's the case with these modern sort of people that we're dealing with. A lot of them are engaged in trying to create market control by creating these ersatz food products. They're, you know, they, they have their interests and they don't behave the way that they advocate. Um, which is always a bad sign, you know, do as I say, not as I do. Um, and, and the good news, I think, is we have a growing awareness, one driven by like yours, like mine, like others, personal experience, our health restoration, mm -hmm. and maybe that or change, improvement. And then that can shift into learning more about something that we were taking for granted. And we start looking and go, whoa, wait a minute, the emperor has no clothes. What's this about? And then maybe that can open up and maybe hopefully we can begin to have conversations across this space from produ food production through the health of the public that's dependent on the food production all the way across. And uh, even sustainability conversations tend to be too narrowly focused. We're only going to look at environmental issues. And sustainability has to concern the societal impacts as well, and the economic impacts as well, and the environmental impacts. And we, we haven't yet begun to look rigorously at those questions when it comes to healthcare to the degree that we've done that in agriculture in general, animal agriculture in particular. So how do we communicate that? How do we overcome some of these gaps, right, that exist in people's experience that only 2% of people today work in agriculture, 98% are entirely dependent on those two, mm -hmm. but in ways that they don't always have to be aware of until, you know, we get a hiccup in the distribution system. Um, well, I... I mean, I think you're exactly right that these kinds of conversations need to happen. I would urge people to speak up and uh, talk about any of these issues uh, insofar, you know, wherever their expertise is or to try to, to even just write, uh, you know, to journalists and newspapers. I mean, because the reality is, is that like so many conversations that we wish we could have on various topics in public, the space is shrinking for conversation on this topic because it is considered settled science that meat needs to be eliminated. That is just, that, you know, there are, it is considered um, that there should be no more discussion. It's taken for granted that meat should, uh, it is bad for the planet and it's bad for human health. And there is, I think, a well-funded and purposeful shrinking of the available space for conversation. Uh, it's, it's there, um, I think, especially, um, you don't like to use this word so much, but in mainstream media, there really is, is almost closed to discussions about meat, animal agriculture. It's for them, it's, it's almost a sort of, uh, it's an act of heresy to even question it because that makes you a climate denier. That makes you a right wing Republican. If you eat meat, you might as well be 
um, you know, have a gun collection behind you. So I think that, you know, there's an effort to <laughs> politicize this issue. Um, I think there's a conscious effort to politicize this issue and make it seem as if red meat eaters are people who are right wing uh, uh, climate or whatever deniers, people who don't um, fit in. They're not the kinds of people that you that the media would like to associate with and that the most of the elites who are running public health, they, that, that is not their milieu or their background or their constituencies. Um, so I think it's urgent that people from, well, from all walks of life, but, you know, particularly people like me from Berkeley, California, <laughs> not exactly, uh, you know, home to um, a lot of NRA members are, you know, talking about you know, that, that they, uh, they're the reasons that they feel comfortable eating meat or why they feel it's an important part of a healthy diet or what they would rather give up in, in favor of giving up meat. I would rather not fly. I would rather like give me a choice of what I can do to contribute to the environment. Um, I think it's also incredibly important for people. There are many people who simply cannot recover from their devastating diseases, immune conditions, terrible conditions without meat. I mean, this is, you know, whether or not that's desirable is sort of not even, it's beyond the beyond asking because they as humans would not be able to survive without eating meat. I mean, there is just a reality. Plant foods contain many toxins that the one that we're all familiar with is, of course, gluten. If you, you, Some people can't digest gluten or have a bad reaction to it. But there it turns out to be many toxins in plant foods that other people have terrible reactions to those toxins. So I think that this kind of conversation, of course, it needs to happen. But it is a matter of some urgency for people to speak out and for this yeah. to happen sooner rather than later. I don't know if you know this, Peter, but in... June, there is a United Nations summit, food summit, where uh, track two is on um, adopting, it's basically aims to adopt what is called the Eat Lancet diet, which contains, I think it's 2% of calories that are allowed to eat as meat. I think it's like this much per day. And it is um, well over 60% carbohydrates. I think that is a First of all, it's a diet that has never been tested on human populations. Again, no rigorous data on something you're about to recommend to the entire world. But um, but it's also like it's just it's from the science that we know. We know that would be an intolerable diet for anybody with obesity, diabetes, well, high liver disease, heart disease. That would um, be a diet I that think would they I think they themselves acknowledge it. It would be deficient in essential nutrients. And it would be de deficient in essential nutrients, which is not simply a problem of the third world, as they will say. It is a problem in our nation. We have deficiencies of you know, iron, folate, um, choline, several B vitamins. B12. Yeah. Right. So... This is a problem. This is a problem in the in the U.S. Um, yes, and in wealthy nations. Yeah. So I, yeah, and this I, is going to happen in June, and it's led by the woman who is you know the billionaire hedge funds woman who who has um, underwritten or worked with Eat Lancet, and and it, their industry partner 
is called the Good Food Institute, which is basically a trade association for the lab meat companies. Mm -hmm. So as you say, there are huge uh, corporate financial interests behind this, what is going to become the, what is it will be called the reference diet for the entire world. Yeah. Will this come yeah. to our shores? You know, it's just, I don't know, but I know that there are many people who will say, well, we now have, you know, UN consensus. Yes, exactly. Let's bring, let's bring that to the U S and, and, and in fact, there are, uh, you know, there, there are groups now urging supermarkets to carry much less meat and dairy. There's of course the, occasional um, proposals for a meat tax or meatless yes. days, meat-free yes. days. I mean, all of that is, um, you know, all of these small encroachments, I think, add up to our freedom to eat what is healthy and good for us, or is at least our choice. Yes, and, and there's much that I would love to talk to you about along that track. Um, there are several things that I'm trying to... Um, help in, in offer assistance to make people aware of what's happening and um, some global efforts. Uh, frankly, these these questions look a lot different if you're not in North America. Um, if you're in sub-Saharan Africa and you're looking at Westerners imposing their belief systems on the rest of the world, it it looks a little different. And yet we're it's it's going to happen to us. It will impact us as well. So, um, and more people need to know about the food systems summit. Um, and there is information that I'm happy to, to put people in touch with. And, um, so I've, I've kept you, uh, longer than you agreed to be online for, um, if, if you have any questions for me before I let you get on to what I know you have to get to, um, I'd be, I'll, I'll try to give you a short answer to any questions you want to ask me. It's only fair. Uh, no, I don't have any questions. I'm sorry, I didn't prepare any, but I, I really, you know, I'll congratulate you on this podcast. I think it's an important uh, area to talk about and discuss. And, and so I just wish you the best with it. Well, thank you. And I wish you the best as well. Uh, where can people find more about you and what you're engaged in these days? Well, I do have ninateichels.com. Uh, uh, I'm I'm probably most actor on Twitter, which is um, at sign Big Fat Surprise. And I also direct an organization called the Nutrition Coalition, which uh, has the aim of ensuring that our nutrition policy is evidence-based, which sounds really exciting, but it does involve things like ensuring that like, if you're going to say reduce processed meat, where's the data on reducing processed meat? And it turns out they're is no rigorous data on that and many other things that are in our dietary guidelines, which I just want to put in a little plug on that. I mean, the dietary guidelines control school lunches, feeding programs for the elderly, um, basketball, women and infant children, military food. I mean, it's, it, it and is dispensed by almost all doctors and dietitians, most healthcare workers. So they really have a vast influence over what we think is a healthy diet. And as long as they're not based on good science and are, are um, you know, are wrong in many ways, I think that is damaging to Americans. So 
that website is nutritioncoalition.us. And you can go and see our offerings there or sign up for our newsletter. Perfect. Or donate. <laughs> yeah, even. Or all, all, all of them. Uh, all, all three. Um, so closing, my last point for you to react to is that the preponderance of highest quality evidence strongly suggests that the most likely harm associated with animal source food or particularly meat is from not consuming enough. <laughs> um, let me turn that on its head and say that it is the overconsumption of the foods replacing animal foods, processed foods, grains, sugar and anything that turns to sugar in your body, which is you know all grains and high sugar fruits, is the overconsumption of those foods instead of animal foods, which is the greatest driver of uh, chronic disease in this country, I believe, given the Perfect. current evidence. Perfect. Always good to keep that in mind, given the current evidence. Uh, I'd like to think I'm the person that is capable of changing his mind. So um, thank you and um, be well. Thank you, Peter. Nice to see you.